Welcome to the Move Forward Podcast with Dr. Kim Moss. We are here to move you forward in the call of God for your life, your career, and your ministry through prophetic insight, practical teaching, and powerful conversations with influential leaders. Never throw away your confidence. It is time to move forward. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Move Forward podcast. I am your host, as usual, Dr. Kim Moss. And today I am so excited because I have a very, very special guest with me. And uh, he happens to be not only a friend of mine and uh, and a, a mentor of sorts, but he is my spiritual dad. So I want you to welcome with me Dr. Randy Clark. Um, Randy Clark is a healing evangelist. He's an apostolic father. He's a global leader. He is a revivalist and he's called many other things. I know him as a very educated and brilliant and anointed man of God who um, had me at communion. And I always love to tell this story about you, Randy. But the very first time that I met Randy Clark was when I went to do my doctoral studies and I was part of the Randy Clark Scholars. And one of the very first meetings that we had, we were told about why, uh, why Randy was interested in gathering scholars and having them educated for the purposes of revival and to keep revivals on track theologically. So I was very privileged to be part of that group. Um, but, it, but I didn't really know much about Dr. Clark and, um, and I had heard some stories and not all of them were, were favorable in my context uh, because of the Toronto revival that you were a part of, Randy. And, um, and so I was very interested in meeting this guy. And, um, but during that very first time that we all met and uh, all of the scholars were together and um, you led us in communion. And it was during that moment when you started talking about the blood and the body of Christ, you started to cry. And in that it was that moment right there that completely won my heart. And I knew that I could trust you with my heart, with my life, with my mind putting uh, so that as we studied together, I could trust what you were going to say, because I knew that anyone who felt that strongly and felt that much holiness over the communion elements, the body and the blood of Christ was someone that I wanted to follow. And so you had me at communion. That's what I always tell my friends. <laughs> and so okay. I'm so glad that you're here with me today, Randy. Um, thank you so much. And I, I go between calling you Dr. Clark and Randy. I know you as Randy. I know you as dad. I know you as so. So if I, if I interchange those, okay. uh, those titles, okay. uh, I do want to, I'm so, so welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Kim. Uh, can we pause right here? Yeah. I realize. Well, we're back and uh, welcome back, Randy. We, um, we needed to switch rooms, everybody. For those of you who are going to watch this on YouTube, um, rather than just listening by podcast, if you notice the scene change, it's because we realized that we needed just a little bit better lighting. And so now, uh, so now we'll start over. Well, we're not going to start over, actually. I'd like you to read, uh, I'd like to read Dr. Randy's uh, bio, because I think it's important for you to understand who he really is. 
So Dr. Randy Clark is the overseer of, global, overseer of Global Awakening and the Apostolic Network of Global Awakening. He is best known for helping spark the new move of God now affectionately labeled the Toronto Blessing. In the years since his in the years since his influence has grown as an international speaker, noted primarily for revival, healing, and impartation, Randy's message is simple: God wants to use you. Randy has the unique ability to minister to many denominations and apostolic networks. Randy has traveled to 50 countries and he continues to travel extensively to see that God's mandate on his life is fulfilled. Randy received his MDiv from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and his D-Min from United Theological Seminary. He created Master of Divinity courses at United Theological Seminary and Global Awakening Theological Seminary in conjunction with the Family of Faith College. In addition, Dr. Clark has authored or helped compile over 40 books, as well as numerous training manuals and workbooks. He created the Global Certification Program and published multiple curriculum sets regarding healing. Randy has been featured in Charisma Magazine, as well as TV programs, including Sid Ross, It's Supernatural, and The 700 Club. Randy and his wife, Deanne, reside in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. They have four adult children, all of whom are married, and eight grandchildren. For more information, I thought you had 10 grandchildren. You have eight? Number nine is in uh, coming in March. Oh, how sweet. So for more information about Randy Clark and his ministry, his ministry resources, his resource materials, visit globalawakening.com. Find Dr. Randy Clark and his products at globalawakening.com, at Randy Ray Clark, if you're looking on Instagram, Randy Clark on Facebook, and globalawakening.com bookstore for all of his products. Thank you so much, Randy, for being here. It's so exciting to talk to you. You're welcome, Kim. All right, so let's get started. I know I asked you a couple of sort of, well, they're not silly questions, but they're just questions designed to help them get to know you as a person. And uh, so let's start with those, if that's okay with you. I asked you to describe yourself in three words and then tell me why did you choose those words? Actually, I used four and one I had hyphenated. The very first thing that came to mind was blessed and chosen. I, I have lived a blessed life and I am a very much aware that uh, um, when people ask me, how would, could we do what you've done? I, I say, if I told you, you you're not going to, it's not going to be helpful because I really didn't uh, pursue this, have a plan for it. It, it just, uh, God called me to do it and uh, um, made it happen himself apart from really, it was all about him, his anointing, his presence that, that did it. So that's the one that this blessed because there is a sense that I didn't choose this. I had chosen for it mm -hmm. Two. um, I, I would say that it's been a value of mine and I've tried to walk in it my whole life is humility. And I would say that does characterize, I, I do see myself as desiring that uh, and wanting to re um, remain humble, you know, to die humble, uh, not to believe too much of what others say. Uh, and uh, I'm a visionary very much a visionary. I don't mean a futurist of knowing, predicting the future, but a visionary of, of the way things uh, could be rather than the way they are and the, the, 
and sensing what God is wanting to do in my life and in my ministry to bring in um, and to establish the things that will be needed for what I'm supposed to do to fulfill his call in my life. So I've always been a visionary and I've always known I was a leader of leaders. And uh, ever since I was very young and uh, called in, into, the, into the ministry. Uh, however, I'm, I'm terribly unorganized and I'm not disciplined and um, in the sense of really r r leading a methodical life, I'm a very much, you know, <laughs> in the spur of the moment. But, you know, I do plan, but it's, um, it's, it's, it's like a, um, until I had, until my churches became large enough that I wasn't pastoring by myself without any staff. Until I was, until I was able to get, organized administrative staff around me I was I was still a visionary but none of it came true and I was accused by my friends of being Randy Clark the vaporware salesman <laughs> that I'm always talking the vision but none of it was coming true but once God once things became such that I had help and organized people and administrative people around me Ever since then, almost all the dreams and visions have come to pass. So I value all the gifts in the body of Christ, and I value, you know, the administrators and organizers and all. Uh, one, Kim, I want to tell you one thing. One time, uh, my youngest son was traveling with me a few years ago for a year around the world, and uh, we were talking, and, and uh, it was a really great time for father and son to have this time together for like, I think, I don't know, it was close to 200 days that year where he was with me and traveling and, and worked for me. Um, and one night we were just talking and I said, you know, son, ever since I was in the seventh grade, I kind of knew what I wanted to do. I wanted my goal for life it was to be happy, uh, happily married, to have children and to love uh, what I do. And all of that, has happened in my life mm -hmm. that I am happily married. I have children and I love what I do. And then I was saying, but you know, now I like to, I, I, I really want to expand it. I want to be happy in that understanding of what happiness is healthy and holy. And he called it the three cubed H cubed H cubed. <laughs> he said, dad, you already are successful. You're H cubed. And so I've, we've always had fun with that. That sense of summarizing life is, is simplifying it. It doesn't have to be dependent upon all the accolades and things, but just the simplicity of happy, healthy, and holy. That's really good. I think one of the things that I hear about you a lot, because I've traveled with you quite some now for the last several years, and, um, and with teams, you know, that, that have met you for the first time, pastors from all over the world that meet you and travel. We go to Brazil together, you know, for the first time. And, and the thing that I always hear from them and, um, and, and uh, is about the humility factor. And um, one, of the, one of the ways that we see that in you, Randy, and I, I'd like to hear about this from you, is that um, when we watch you minister, and especially in healing, you celebrate the smallest healing the same way as you celebrate the most miraculous 
thing. Like, like I, and I never, and honestly, because I haven't known you all of your life and ministry, but for several years now, um, that, that fire sort of never wanes. It's not like, um, over the last um, seven years that I've known you and and watched you minister, that it has decreased your your joy and your celebration of what God does has never decreased. Like you don't get bored with it. And um, but I I think that's part of of humility. So did you make a decision about that? Is some part in your life? Did you did you is that something you thought about and you dedicated yourself to, or it's just something that is part of who you are and how you operate? I think it's actually a little bit of both. Um, I remember before I met Tommy, um, not Tommy Tenney or Tommy Hicks, but Tommy Reed. Um, before I met him, I had determined that I didn't want to become um, a spiritual junkie that starts out with marijuana and adjust, you know, uh, to another drug and into another drug and into heroin and, or whatever in a, in a metaphorical way that, you know, we start out with a healing of a headache and maybe healing of a lower back and we're excited about it because we've never seen a headache heal, but then it becomes not enough. And, and, and I think it's all right for the sense I'm, uh, this is not enough, but what's not all right is not to be thankful later on for what you were thankful for the first time you saw it and trying to maintain that same childlike excitement, not just childlike faith, but childlike excitement and gratitude. So I remember thinking, I don't want to be kind of like a spiritual junkie and it's going to take more and more and more to satisfy me or, or um, maybe a better way of saying it more and more and more before I could become excited. And so that was a, I think that was a conscious thought. Then I met Tommy Reed, his pastor of a really large Assembly God church in uh, Buffalo, New York. And he told me, uh, he, uh, Jack Cole was a friend of his family. He's a, Jack Cole was a famous healing. I know you do this, but for our audience's sake, a famous healing evangelist in the um, late 40s, 1940s. And, uh, uh, after, and, and as a result of that, he, uh, Tommy came back to the Lord after he just saw all these miracles take place in Jack Cole's ministry at, uh, at the Assembly God headquarters. And he and his father, Jack Cole, I'm not Jack Cole, but uh, Tommy Reed and his father uh, were one of the hundreds of Pentecostals in that season that had a tent and traveled around America doing healing meetings in this great healing. It was called the 1948 Healing Revival. And then he told me this, and this did stick. And this has been very uh, influential in thinking about it. He said, Randy, do you know why one of the reasons why the revival ended? And I said, no, I, I don't know. Uh, he said, well, you've heard of the three G's, gold, money, glory, and girls, immorality. <laughs> um, but he said, there's another one. And I said, well, what's that? I had heard of, their, of those three, but what's the other? He said, when it first started, everybody was so excited about the healings. But the healings became so common in the meetings that people started taking them for granted. And it got to a point that people were no longer awed by what God was doing, unless it was just an extremely bigger miracle than they'd been seeing. They began to take them for granted. And what it excited them in the beginning no longer excited them. And they lost 
thanksgiving for what God was doing. And it was from the jadedness of losing the ability to be awed by the presence and power of God and thanksgiving for it that it grieved the Holy Spirit and was one of the causes for the um, demise of that move of healing revival. And I never forgot that. Wow, I think that's so important. I think that's so important. The other thing that you just mentioned um, is uh, holy. You want it happy, healthy, and holy. And of course we could talk about those forever, but I wanted to point out holy because for the last few years, as we think about uh, another move of God coming, um, I have felt so strongly that God wanted to bring back holiness because I think that in many ways we have um, gotten away from holiness because we have made it sort of religious exercise, you know, and there was some extremes and something legalism that crept in um, to the holiness movements early on. And um, but what what does what does that mean to you to be holy? You want to be happy, healthy, and holy. Yeah. What, what does that look like? Well, my, I had a great uncle who was a, a part of a holiness Pentecostal denomination. And so I, I saw that. And that's not what I was, that's not what I think of. That is the legalistic yeah. side. Um, and it's, it's a lot easier to stop doing a certain things, a prescribed list of don'ts, than it is to guard your heart that it is to walk in humility, to walk in love, to uh, that your calendar and your checkbook um, reflect our reflections of holiness, what we'll give our time to and what we'll give our money to really are huge values uh, in our life. And so I think of holiness by thinking of Jesus. He could hang out with sinners he could go to parties, but he wasn't like them in the sense of he, he, he wasn't uh, himself tied up in, in the, he said, it's not the things that go in the mouth that, can, that, that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, the words and the thoughts and, and reveals the heart. Yeah. And sinners love being around him. And yet he was the most holy person that ever walked the earth. Yeah. And so it's this, Surrender to God's will and purposes, and at the same time, being loving, compassionate, and identifying with the people that not doing what they do, but loving them and identifying with them and feeling like they can be comfortable around you. That's kind of what I think of holiness. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thanks. So, uh, so then I'm going to ask you one more of these questions, then we're going to get into our topic because we're not going to have, we're going to run out of time. But um, I want to, I want to ask you about the, the letter C on our, on our notes. So um, tell us about one of the key decisions or events in your life that God used to shape you as a leader. You are a global leader. People all over the world follow you. You have churches following you, but, but in your development as a leader, there must've been something with several things I'm sure that you could point to, but is there something that you significantly remember? I thought, I thought about this question some, and um, I, I just an initial response were down three different things. Uh, I think the very first was so important in the shaping uh, was my being called of God very, very supernaturally to the ministry uh, as a young Baptist at 18 years old. 
And with that call in the middle of the Jesus movement to also decide that I want to get, I want to be educated um, in, and, and pursued a major minor in all my electives in religious studies. And I was going to quit, but then I went on and uh, got a master of divinity um, and graduated 25 years old with master of divinity. Um, I think the decision to say yes to God in this call uh, and um, the importance of also in my case, I don't think I could have done all God wanted me to do or be able to reach the people I reached if I hadn't have been willing and want and desired and enjoyed actually uh, education. Yeah. Um, and I think believing in God's call when there was a rejection, I got kicked out of seminary and told not to come back to go to law school. I was a, I was a bright student. Uh, I went, I, I had had a divorce at 22. Um, my f- first wife was unfaithful. Um, and I chose, and they, and they told me this is because you will never have a ministry and what you could have had, you now won't have. And this is to save you time and our Southern Baptist money. Um, I didn't handle that really, really well. That really was so discouraging. And I, I, I was so hurt. I got angry and I just, I made some bad choices for a few months in there. And, but I remember one night, I just remember the Lord spirit came on, touched me. And, and I actually had a mental picture of, of Jesus and he wasn't happy. He was sad for me. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember praying that night and I was, I was renting a room. A friend of mine was going to the same seminary. I was just right before I left and he and his wife uh, needed help. And so I could rent a room from them and they'd provide food for me and stuff. And I was in that little room and I got on in my knees and I prayed, Lord, I'm going to choose to believe your call rather than man's rejection. Wow. And if it's true that I will never have the big first Baptist church that I was being groomed for. And if it's true, I won't really have any type of significant ministry, but I still believe in your call. And even if that's true and I end up having to work a secular job and have a church so small, I can't even make a living from it. I still want to be say yes to you and be the best uh, minister I can be. I'm going to choose to believe uh, your call, rather your your call and acceptance rather than uh, leaders' rejection. And I was so wounded at the time. I I, I, val- I vacillated between that statement and saying, "Well, even if I can't have a church at all, and even." I could at least be a chaplain and uh, maybe I could be a chaplain in the military. So I'm, I need to come back to school so I can at least be, be that. But after Deanna and I married her, you know, if you get, sometimes the way you were hurt is the way God can heal you. Yeah. And so it was with such a different uh, personality and acceptance and love and unconditional love and, believing in me and rather than cutting me down all the time that, that there was a healing so much so that, you know, when I uh, had a church and when I told the church about, you know, the divorce and all that I was pastoring, um, I had a hundred percent vote to stay because they could see what was going on behind scenes. And, but I, I I always um, had a church 
except for 11 months when I started started a new church in St. Louis uh, years later, eight or nine years later, I guess, um, when I was frying donuts for a living for 11 months as I started a new church. But except for then, I've been, uh, been preaching and pastoring since 1970. Oh, that's beautiful. That's a, such a beautiful story. I think that's so true for any leader who feels called because um, I don't, I don't know a leader who hasn't been through something that was so devastating or so rejecting that they really could have walked away. And, um, and I think many probably have over the years and, um, but it's those who continue on through that, that, that they begin to have the sort of perseverance to uh, actually walk in ministry because you have to have a measure of perseverance. Yeah. John Wimber used to say, I don't trust any pastor that doesn't have a limp. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, that's the first thing. The second thing was the decision at Spillertown to go at, to, to say yes to when God really spoke to me to preach differently, to teach on healing and to have a conference on healing or seminar on healing at my Baptist church, to say yes to that. And all that ensued as a result of that and ending up, you know, meeting Blaine and the vineyard and all that happened, that was a key event. And then uh, the last thing I would say, uh, Kim, is the, the baptism of the Spirit that, actually, this is Tom calling in. Let me tell you, I'm just going, can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but it was the, the being filled with the Spirit, a baptizing Spirit, uh, in 84 at the vine at the uh, Spillertown, my Baptist church, when the vineyard came again at the regional meeting of the vineyard in 1989, five years later, when I thought I was going to die, the power was so strong. And then the very, very, very different type of being filled. Uh, it was peace, no electricity, no shaking, uh, no, no heat like all the other uh, two had been. Um, no fear you're going to die. Actually, the other, it was like, is this really God or not? Because it was so different. And yet it was, it resulted in the most power of, of the other, more than the other two even. So um, those three things, the Spillertown event to say yes to that uh, and the, say yes to God's call and go to, go to college uh, are all important. And I think also that the, the willingness to leave everything in St. Louis that we had built, my wife and I, in 16 years and start over and move halfway across the country based upon prophetic words and um, just give full time to global awakening was another significant thing that shaped my life. Wow. God does so many amazing things, doesn't he? It's incredible from from thing to thing. So I want to talk about our topic today because of course uh, I love the prophetic and I know you do too and uh, and I've come to love healing because of you actually and um, but I in particularly love prophecy and I know that my life has certainly been shaped by prophetic words and some of them have come from you Randy and uh, and I know that there are many other leaders who have been uh, wildly shaped by the prophetic words spoken over their life from you and from others. And, uh, and they have really, really believed that those words from God were from God and seen them come to pass. And I think that's so important. Um, but one of the things that I love about you that I wanted to talk to you about on this program um, has to do with re revival movements 
and prophecy because every revival movement has particular, let's say, um, uh, manifestations. I think that that most of them do operate in many of the gifts and uh, and that we've seen. But you particularly have a great historical understanding and knowledge of revival movements. And so I wanted to ask you a few questions about that. Okay. And so the first one is, um, what what revival movements that you know of were particularly marked by prophecy? Were there any? Yes. Uh, before we get into the church history part, let's just deal with some scriptural ones. Uh, okay. The great revival that uh, opened it up and helped Paul and Peter and the council of, in Jerusalem and to dealing with the Gentile issue was a revival at Cornelius's house. And that is such a marked with prophecy with a, an angel coming to him and Peter having vision and hearing the Lord and, and uh, uh, the divine appointment of things. So that, and then the, the power of God falling. And uh, so that is, a, that is one that is truly marked with prophetic actions and prophecy to both Cornelius before he saved and, um, and Peter. Secondly is the, the great um, missionary work of the church that got started uh, out of Antioch was there, there were prophets and teachers there. And the Lord spoke to the men as they were worshiping and, and setting apart of Paul and Barnabas was really by, I believe, by uh, prophetic. And uh, I believe that Barnabas himself was a prophet. And to some degree, Paul was very prophetic because he had prophetic dreams and visions and, and hearing from the Lord. And, uh, but he was, a, I think also he was uh, noted as a teacher. And so you send out on the first missionary journey, a prophet and a teacher, they've had hands laid on them and they've been sent out by the church and they get back to apostles. Because uh, there was a, like a field commission, there was a promotion. Um, and then in um, the, the call into, at that time they hadn't gone into Europe yet, but the call into uh, Europe was actually through a prophetic dream. And so the revivals that would result in the early uh, first missionary journey on, with Paul and Barnabas was due to a, a uh, prophetic dream that they so quickly and almost immediately said, we term this is the Lord, and they just obeyed, instant obedience. So that's some from Scripture, uh, from the book of Acts. And then when we think about it, um, in 1857, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the most famous Baptist preachers of all time, who moved in word of knowledge, he didn't, would not have used that term, but he had these experiences while he's preaching. I actually have this whole set of all of his sermons. And, and when I was a Baptist, I read a lot more of them than I have time to now. <laughs> but at, one of the things that shocked me is I was reading, particularly after I myself was touched and began to realize this, the, this realm of um, revelation. And I want to pause for a moment and just mention something. Okay. This is the big word that detractors of the... Uh, apostolic networks or prophetic movements. This is the big word that they have a big problem with because they like to restrict it to revelation is what needs to be canonized. And all revelation from God needs to be put in a canon. So we can't have a closed canon if we have modern day revelation. And I'd like to say that that's totally wrong. Uh, for example, in, the, in almost any systematic theology book you'd read, it begins usually dealing with revelation. And it will talk about general revelation, how we can know God through the uh, intelligent design, through cosmological argument based upon looking around the world, Romans 1, that we should know that there's a God just from nature, which called general 
revelation. Yeah. That's not enough to know how to get saved. Special revelation is the Heigl Schecter, the German word, which means the salvation history, how God has worked with his people and how he's led to bring certain writings and prophecies and teachings together in our first, the old, the canon of the Old Testament, and now the New Testament, the total canon. And that's special revelation. But in that special revelation, you have many times that it tells us the Lord spoke, the Lord directed, and you and but it's not part of the special revelation. It's noted there. It's in special revelation. God does do this. He speaks to people. Uh, he leads people. And we can actually see, as I've mentioned, this, the dream, how Paul was led. But are so much that is there that we know that people were receiving from God that's never recorded in itself. So even the, the canon, the Bible actually shows there's another kind of revelation, what I call specific revelation. For example, it's good. go into the ministry, go to college, invite the vineyard to come to my Baptist church. Yeah. To, uh, go to St. Louis later and start a church to leave there 16 years later, move here. None of that is in the Bible. There's nowhere in the scripture, the canon, I can find specific direction for specific um, leading of God. Key, most important, you know, I've just said, these are the, the most important things that shaped me. Um, and yet it was from reading the scripture that I realized that these are ways that God does. I mean, it's consistent with God to call. It's con so you can get principles, but you can't get the specifics. And so when I talk about revelation, I am really realizing that there's general revelation, special revelation, the Bible, and specific revelation that's never to become part of scripture at all. So those who it's afraid that if you open up to the term use revelation, they say, well, you can have inspiration, but you can't have revelation. <laughs> They're trying to narrow revelation too narrowly. So uh, having, having said it, I think that was important. But so uh, Spurgeon, back to Spurgeon, in 1857, he, in the middle of his sermon, began to prophesy. And I've read his sermons where he would get, there's somebody here, you've been unfaithful and mishandling things. I mean, literally, we would call them in the Pentecostal or charismatic movement, words of knowledge today, or others might call them prophetic insights. But he had them, and he was one of the most famous Baptist preachers of all time. And he also, most people don't know it, he also had a very powerful healing ministry. One person, it's on the internet, it's free, you can find it, um, it talks about his healing ministry, um, um, which was just, he believed the promises of God. And uh, so he prophesied that there was going to be a great revival, greater than what they were seeing at the moment. It was 1857. In 1859, only two years away, was one of the greatest revivals that uh, England and the Isle of he uh, Lewis and the Hebrew, um, um, or that England had at the time, and I think Ireland as well. And uh, and he said he didn't know when it was going to be, but it wasn't going to. It was it was less than uh, it was less than 50 years before the great holiness revival would be the last 25 years of the 19th century. And the beginning of the 20th century, you got the great Pentecostal revival, which was all focused on the working of the Holy Spirit, more so than revivals of the past had been. So, you know, he, you know, he had that. 
Uh, and when I think about it from a, uh, a, a church history perspective, when we get to the Pentecostal revival, the birth of Pentecost in Chile was through a Methodist guy named Hoover, Dr. Hoover is a medical doctor. And he was told by a janitor in his church that he had a prophecy of how he, what he's supposed to do, call them to pray together. And Hoover believed the janitor, humbled himself, believed that was a word from the Lord, did exactly what it said. And they had a breakout and the Pentecostalism was bro broke out in, in his church. And it became after a while, the largest church in the world. And so Pentecost came into Chile through a prophetic dream. Now, Hoover had been reading and studying and crying out in prayer, and, and, and God answered it through someone else who brought him a, uh, a prophetic word. In the early days of the Pentecostal revival, you got two guys that's in a home prayer meeting. We called them cottage prayer meetings. And they, in Indiana, I believe it was, Daniel Berg and Gunnar Vingren. And they were Swedish guys. And there's a prophetic word. They hear the word, uh, and, they, and it's about uh, para, and they don't know where it's at. And they go to Chicago, the library, and they look it up, and they find out that it's a place uh, in uh, Brazil. And they end up, by prophecy, hearing God, and God told them to go to a place, hearing from the Lord. And when they get there in New York City, somebody shows up to where God had told them to go and has exact money they need to get <laughs> one-way tickets to Belém and the Pentecostal movement, which is older than the Assemblies of God in Brazil, is older than the Assemblies of God in the United States. And that was how it was birthed through these prophetic uh, words. Um, the Russia, the Pentecostal revival in Russia at the beginning of the century was a Baptist guy who had come from that area and his wife gets filled with the Holy Spirit, his daughter gets filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he does, and he became called, they called him the apostle of the Slavs. And this was many years before there was any discussion about uh, apostles today. He was called that because he started hundreds and hundreds of churches. Um, and it ended up though, his name is Varanov. Uh, his wife was in prison for 25 years in Russia. And, and uh, he, he was shot in the back after years of being imprisoned. And uh, they let the dogs eat his body. And, um, and so that was a, the ignoble death uh, that he had, but he had apostolic uh, power, apostolic miracles, apostolic suffering. Um, and he truly was sent on that mission from the Lord because he was in New York City at the time. Well, that was at the beginning of the Pentecostal movement. And so there is so much, if you read the history of the Pentecostal movement, these leaders being sent all over the world by what they believe is God has spoken to them and is sending them. And of course, there's a word in for someone who is sent. And it's a secular word. And it was the apostle. It's someone who sent, delegated by somebody else. And Paul drew that not out of the Hebraic tradition, but from his world experience of the Roman world uh, and, and the Greek word at the time. So when we move from that to the next great revival in American history or world history, it's, it's the middle of the 20th century. You have another great revival that's combination of both the revival that broke out in Canada, strongly related to prophecy that we, was called the latter rain revival and the healing revival and Billy Graham. And it basically these three have 
uh, are starting almost the same time, but Graham is mainly understood as it broke out in 49 and the healing revival in 48 and the latter reign in 48, 47, 48. And, uh, there was all these prophecies about what God was getting ready to do. And through the prophetic words, the people he brought in who later would be used to train other people who would lead millions of people to Jesus. And if you study the prophetic words that was leading all these divine appointments together, you really see that prophecy has been huge. Uh, for example, uh, Edward Miller was sent to um, Chile first. And then he went over to Argentina and, uh, and, and through prophecies that he has in 1949. And I actually, when I was in Brazil one time, I mean, Argentina one time in Resistencia, I met the key young man who was like 13 when it happened. And he was in his seventies. And I had the privilege of bringing, it's the first time he had talked about it in 50 years and having him share that experience of what happened in, in City Bell um, in this breakthrough. And as a result of that, uh, they had revival. And then the Lord said, now I want you to quit traveling and, and I want you to start praying. And so, and this is the key, Kim. Okay. I, all of us understand that there's a, the traditional understanding of revivals connected to prayer. Without prayer, there's no revival. God always responds to the prayer of the church. If he gets ready to have revival, he, he gets the church praying. And, and almost anybody that writes on revival will make that connection. But as I began to study more and more and more about revival, I be, began to, and I began to ask the question because there's a difference between logging hours in prayer. Because yes. Finney talks about the church he went to. The brother Finney, we've been praying or for, or Reverend Finney, we've been praying for so many years for revival. Do you want us to come help? He said, no, not really. If you've been praying that long and haven't got revival, you don't have any faith for revival. We're going to pray and we're going to have revival. And so there's a difference between praying and praying prayers of faith. And that's huge. So I begin to ask, what sustained the people who prayed these prayers to pray in revival? And what I discovered was that in a majority of the time, you can actually find before the breakthrough in prayer that brought about the revival, you'll find key leaders were received prophetic direction from God and prophecies from God. I want to give revival that revelation from God. I want to give revival in this city, in this area, in this country. Uh, and I, the, that's what sustained them and caused them to be able to pray in faith. And so these guys, 1949, uh, they began praying and God showed them, had showed them earlier that he was going to fill the largest stadiums in Argentina. Now that had never happened. They couldn't even get 500 Protestants together. And so they've been praying and then God sends out again, another person from the latter rain, Tommy Hicks, who's a redneck preacher. And on the way down, he's asking the stewardess, God keeps giving me this name. I, I keep, I, didn't, I don't know if he said God, but I keep getting this name. Do you know, um, do you know who anybody by the name of Peron? And the stewardess said, sir, that's the name of our president. <laughs> so he has faith. God's going to give him an access to the president. Long story short, he gains access to the president through praying a prayer to brought healing to the guard. The guard tells him about the president about him and he gets to come and the president's got this disease, a skin disease so bad. He won't even go on television. 
Tommy Hicks, this evangelist from in the latter rain guy, he prays for him. He gets healed. And then he says to him, what do you want from me? And he said, I want you to give me a stadium and I want you to cover my meetings on the national, I don't know, is it TV or radio, maybe both or one or the other. So anyway, you couldn't get 500 people together. He's got a stadium that seat scores of thousands. Within a few days, the miracles are so big, the stadium is packed out <laughs> and they have to go then to the largest stadium of 80 some thousand people in the nation. And they end up with uh, speakers on the wall shooting down into the streets and 80 some thousand filling it up and hundreds of thousands in the street. And it, uh, it took Argentina and it changed its name from the graveyard of Protestant missionaries to the land of anointing, uh, to the land of revival. And that was broken through, through these kids in a ministry school that received visions and prophecies of what God was going to do. Uh, so that well, what, what's interesting, what's interesting about that, I just wanted to point out something in, for a minute, because I'd never thought about that, what you said, the, the connection between revival and prayer, of course, I've always known, but that the prayer of faith being connected, actually being able to pray with faith, being connected to prophetic words that have yeah. come. And yeah. can't we all, even from what you were saying about following the call on your life and having prophetic words that you've fallen, I know uh, followed, followed, not follow, fallen, um, but for myself as well, prophetic words that have come that have given me the foundation for faith to continue going, even when things don't look like they're going to come to pass. And then they have for, you know, even meeting you for years, 20 years before I met you, the Lord had said through a prophet that I would go and speak and prophesy in the nations. And that had never opened up. And yet I did believe it and was able to pray with faith all of those years for that to come to pass. And then, of course, we know about Heidi Baker and and, you know, she was a burned out missionary. She came to one of your meetings. You talked to her about Mozambique and taking the the, the nation, give, receiving the nation from the Lord. And and right after that. She was had a terrible, terrible time. Anybody would have quit, but because she had the prophetic word, she was able to maintain her faith in yeah. what God had said and continue to pray and then receive the revival, so to speak, in Mozambique, which is a, definitely a revival, thousands and thousands and thousands healed and raised from the dead. And so that's very interesting. I'd never really made that connection. And when you think about it that way, Randy, then how even more important it becomes when prophecy is problematic, when it becomes problematic and abused in a, in a movement. It is. And there, there, are, there are pitfalls to the prophetic moves. And there are things that's happened in church history that, that's caused the church to be very skeptical of prophecy. And for some to say, basically, uh, you know, to push it down. You know, Kim, you can see these prophetic things. I, I, I actually have a course, not a course. I, well, it is. The, well, the two of the lectures I'm doing right now in Renewal Theology is deals with the relationship between prophecy to prayer to revival oh. and just lay out uh, all of these incidences of significant 
revivals and almost every one of them you can trace back to these prophetic words that were coming. Now, I haven't been able to find some of them I'm, uh, in, in, for a few back in the 1700s or whatever, but uh, there, it is a, an issue. For example, I, what you just said about abuses uh, that can be a problem. Um, the Montana's revival was the first, Wesley didn't think it was heretical. He just thought they were wrong. Uh-huh. You know, it was a move of God. It was, it was a renewal movement, but it, but there were mistakes that were made, but he didn't really think they're heretical. And there's reason to believe that because of how the church responded. But what, what it was called the new prophecy originally, that's what it was called. And here, and here were the things that were wrong. And Tertullian, one of the greatest leaders of the day, joined that movement because it couldn't have been heretical for one of the greatest theologians of the church at the time to become part of it. Could it be wrong? Yes. Um, and the church was was had, was losing its holiness. The church was becoming, uh, you know, less. The fire was dying out, and and Tertullian was he saw uh, you know a kind of a trying to correct that. But here are two mistakes, and they're, they're common mistakes. Number one is to become uh, too predictive about the. It was about Jesus Christ is going to come back in this year, in this place. And so often, many, many prophetic movements, this is where they get off. They get into an eschatology of of, of sensing and not just trying to figure it out from scripture and doing mathematics and stuff, which I think is also a dead end. But, uh, um, But by feeling like God showed me, this is where it's going to be at. And uh, so that's one. A second is an overemphasis on holiness that moves from what I talked about holiness earlier yeah. to the really strict rules and a, and a very ascetic asceticism and aesthetic lifestyle where uh, often it, it, uh, um, it gets to an, to an extreme. Those are two things. And, and, a third one I would point out is some um, times the people who are involved begin to get an um, a, a too high of a, a grandiose opinion of themselves that, you know, um, I'm Elijah. Uh, that's been a common thing. You know, there are some, uh, for example, um, Dowie, Alexander Dowie, uh, a friend of mine, uh, James Gall, told me that he didn't enter into this I am Elijah phase until the going through the trauma of losing his adult daughter uh, and she wasn't healed and she died. It was after that, that he began to have, um, I, I think mental problems or emotional, it looks, you know, uh, maybe breaks of reality. Um, and, and there were, and some people didn't claim that, but others claimed it for them. So those are the three things, a grandiose view of the person too, too high, and particularly this t- date date setting. Um, and I think, oh, one other thing too that has caused the prophetic to come and disrepute is when the prophetic itself, what is said is an uh, actually an introduction of new doc, uh, of a, a different doctrinal belief con- um, that's very different from what the church has held. So an in, a doctrinal innovation through prophecy uh, has, in some moves, been the very 
reason why we call them heresies. For yeah. you know, for example, the Mormon and uh, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses all dealt with you know prophetic revelation or things that have happened that we said, well, this is this this doctrine is doesn't fit with the Christian faith and the key key elements. And so, um, knowing that some of that stuff has happened then there's a tendency for others to say, well, we shouldn't even have anything to do with it. But the, the way you handle a bad prophecy is not to get rid of prophecy. It's to learn how to correct it and have the right parameters that, uh, that we warn against. These are things that are dangerous. Be careful of these things. Yeah. I think that when, um, of course, we have just faced a time that has been interesting with the prophetic and everything in our nation, and, um, and the church has, does have a tendency to be very disappointed, I think, when, when people who are, are uh, well-known, you know, and very influential um, get, it, get it wrong. And I think that that probably goes, is, uh, can be said about um, the revival movements even in history, when a leader, when a leader gets it wrong, and then, and then where do you go from there? I think we have seen, I know that in our studies, as we studied revival and things like that in our doctoral program, we saw that even in the early days, um, one of the reasons that prophecy was reduced just to preaching, you know, or was actually uh, said that it was ceased uh, and, and limited to, to an evidential um, uh, uh, sign of, of scripture, was because um, there was false prophecy that arose and, and probably the misunderstanding of what false prophecy really is, what false prophets really are. And, um, and then there were false prophets and there were people um, trying to lead people astray by their prophetic words to gain money, to, to start their own cult or what have you. Um, and I think that um, pastoring prophets and prophecy in the church is difficult. But I think, I think, Randy, you have had such a um, history with revival your own self because of Toronto and everything um, that you've probably had to prof uh, pastor some prophets and some prophecy in your time. And so how do we do that well so that we don't lose the gift in the days that are coming? I think that I because I think prophecy is so important um, to a move of God. And I think that we are in the throes of a move of a new move of God right now. Yeah, I, I, even as a pastor, I remember having when we once began to believe that prophecies, prophecy is a present gift that's continued in the church. Then learning, then helping people who are prophetic realize when they're making a mistake, realizing when they're confusing their opinion with God's voice. Um, uh, and, and realizing when they did something or said something as if they said uh, they are speaking first person. I personally, one of the things that I basically did, said, you know, when you speak in first person, it's very, very difficult for people to want to bring a correction. And, um, um, and uh, pretty much I tried to say, give what you think is the Lord, but please don't add thus saith the Lord God at the end. To the point that some people, every time they bring me a prophecy is written, I would not read that. You know, this stuff says long gun. No, because that makes it hard. Um, I think that 
let the people judge and let the uh, leadership, there really doesn't need to be a, uh, a judging. Um, some things you don't know if it's God or not. Um, initially you can, if it's, if, it, if there's a, the lifestyle of the person giving the, the, the prophetic word is such, you can kind of rule it out and say, well, that is coming from a, the, the fruits bad there. Yeah. There's a doctrinal test and there's a worship test. If the word that's what in the book of Revelation, it's all about worship. And so if you try, if they're trying to move the people away from worshiping Jesus. Um, you know, that's not uh, of the Lord. If they're saying, uh, and what Paul said in, in to the Corinthians, if anybody by the spirit said Jesus be cursed, it's basically saying it's the Christ spirit that we're really concerned about. We are really not concerned about the historical Jesus uh, that's wrong. And so you get doctrinal things. Anybody says that uh, Jesus didn't come to flesh first, John, it's of the spirit of antichrist. So you have a, you have doctrinal test, you have moral test, and, and then you have time test in a sense of that's where it really gets dangerous. When we feel like we're so right and we're so specific that, you know, Jesus is going to come back in 1919 or something like that. Taz Russell or Russell Taz or whatever it was. And he didn't. Or before that, Jesus is going to come back on this date in, uh, I think it was in the 1800s. And he didn't. Oh, yes, he did. He came in the, in the sky, which didn't seem. And they reinterpreted. And then you got another movement, a whole denomination. Um, th that's dangerous. So if you prophesy this is going to happen by on this date and there's no other way of looking at it and you're wrong then that's seen as the that prophecy was false you know if we try to reinterpret it um to make it when we start saying we really didn't mean that we meant this um that 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 can be really detrimental i think we that's where there's no humility humility is i was wrong I said it was going to be on this date. I was wrong. I got involved maybe in a, an echo chamber of other people and just being able to admit, uh, you know, I, I missed it on that. It doesn't make a person a false prophet. If they miss a prophetic word, how they respond to it was an important, important thing. Um, you know, Kim, one of the things that I noted is I've, and I do love revival history and I, and, uh, I have hundreds, well, scores of books just on revival. Um, but I had the privilege in Southern France one time where there's a revival of prophecy that broke out in, uh, uh, amongst the French uh, Reformed. And it was, it was famous. In, in, uh, I'm trying to think of the Anglican bishop that wrote, uh, some say it thundered, but he also had another book on the prophecy. And I, it's a very, very good book. It deals with the history of prophecy and things, but in it, I'd read about this place. So I'm there and they take me to this museum way up in the mountains. And it was about the, the French kids who were poor and uneducated. Who, When the spirit came on them, they were speaking in high French, which they couldn't speak. Wow. And, and initially, because I asked them about it initially, it was a pure prophetic thing. And they had a lot, they had a lot of prophecy. It was prophecy they were doing. But then he said, but then it became adulterated. And the way 
the children became adulterated in the sense of the prophetic gift in them as the adult pro, uh, Protestant adults began to speak to them and talk to them and actually plant thoughts in them that the Protestants from all these other countries were now going to come to national Protestant to actually be like a civil war against the Catholic church that was there. And as a result, there, there literally were people who lost their lives. There were people, there were, was death as a result. Um, and it, it caused the, the, the prophetic gift that was on those kids. It was so pure to start with. It became adulterated by, in, 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 in Europe, you see, there, there's church state. And so you, it's, it's politics and religion all mixed in together. And because of that, they said, surely the other Protestant nations are going to come to our aid here. And a lot of them, some of them were put in prison. Some of them were put in um, like slave ships, you know. Uh, and so that was one. And then in the Reformation, the early Reformation under Luther, it was more from the Anabaptist movement. And, uh, and there's, I've read about it from another place where there was laws and, uh, that were, had been agreed to that dealt with commerce, and it actually was economics. And then the lords went against that and undid it. And in doing so, it was very unfair and unjust to the um, merchants that was beginning to develop, not just the serfs. And uh, as a result, and, and you know, Kim, I think that the prophetic word was really from God that he was displeased with the injustice, the unrighteousness, the unfairness, and the lords and nobles were actually wrong. I actually think that side, the Anabaptist prophets were, were right. Mm -hmm. But then how they interpreted it was we need to have a revolution. And they had what was called the peasants' revolt. And what happened? 100,000 peasants died. They literally militarized. The prophetic caused a militarization in Germany, or what would become Germany, and, and uh, Germanic lands. And Luther was so fearful of the anarchy that developed around a prophetic word that was destabilizing of society that he sided with the nobles and basically, basically was saying, if you bloody your sword with the blood of the, the, because the, they were saying, we don't even need the Bible now. We did, we got the Holy spirit. And, oh, and yeah. so they, it, they went way too far, but, but two of these things where prophecy was, um, perverted by the, uh, a, a militaristic belief about, well, they're going to come and help us. And this one actually raising up and they went against the nobles uh, and they believe there is a righteous cause of God. Was it a righteous cause of God? Yes, I think it was, but did they interpret God's heart correctly for what to do? I don't think they did. And they cause, you know, and that created such an, uh, a fear in Luther in the beginning of the Reformation that he doesn't want anything to do with prophecy because he's seen how it can, used improperly, 
caused yeah. such havoc. And he says, sola scriptura. Which is so, which is so interesting. And I know that we're, we're beginning to run out of time and I do want you to pray for us and tell us anything that you see about what's going on in our, in, in this year and in, in our, in our nation and the nations. Um, but it's so interesting because um, I think that God in this time is beginning to speak to us again about this very precious, very sacred and very important gift. And um, that any gift that is incredibly important, especially something as important as speaking God's words, um, that that we cannot treat it casually, you know, and I and I and I really feel like and I know that you'll be and I really do feel uh, Randy and I know I wrote this to you the other day. I really feel like you're going to be instrumental in this and we need you to be instrumental in this um, is to begin to gather again um, leaders who are uh, who really have so much influence to talk about how we steward a gift like this in this movement as God begins, because as you and I have talked about this before, about how a, a revival movement will rise and fall on its theology. And, um, but if, if prophecy is not lining up with theology or if it's not handled well, and I'm not, and I, and I don't mean um, that we, we spank people and, and ostracize them if they get it wrong. That's not because I've gotten it wrong before myself, um, but that we begin to look again at this, really important gift and we approach it with the fear of the Lord of course and um, but we we really set set in place how are we going to steward a pastor such an important gift um, because I think it's important for the time going ahead do you yes I, I do believe that prophecy is a very important gift to the church and it's uh, was to continue. And until Jesus comes back, based on Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, uh, and the following verses right after that. Um, and I believe it is extremely important. I believe the not just the, the prophecy important, but I believe the um, office of prophet is important. And we, we need seasoned, uh, mature people that can help like, help people discover how to hear God and discover the ways of God. And, but also knowledgeable enough to say, and here's some, here's some things to watch out for based upon the history of the church and things that have gone wrong in the past that really caused the church to, to back away. Yeah. We, we need to try to limit <laughs> that. Yes. And, uh, and, 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 but it, but it is also, you know, it is a gift. And uh, John Sanford in his book of, years ago wrote about prophecy. Uh, James Gall was telling me this when he read it. He, he was a young man. And he says it takes 20 years yes. to form a prophet. It was the said, first book on prophecy that, I read too. Yeah. He said, oh, that was so discouraged. And here I was, a young was guy in the 30s. That is so discouraging. He said, now 20 years later, he said, boy, that's so right. Yeah. It was a scary book to read it will it does put sort of the fear of god in you you know and um and while i completely believe um and and you know wrote this in my my dissertation that that the church is a prophetic community and all may prophesy 
because the Holy Spirit has been poured out and the Holy Spirit is a spirit of power and prophecy. So I completely believe that. Yet, um, I do also believe that it's really important that we begin to understand about um, this gift in in the way um, that it, it can be it can be severely abused and it can really hurt people. And, and yet, and, and at the same time, we need to be teaching in our churches so that people are not so discouraged if somebody gets it wrong, you know, and yeah. uh, we need to sort of, I think that we're supposed to be coming to a new, a new place with this gift is all I'm saying. So anyway, you know, I, we are, huh? What did you want to say? I just want to say two things, Kim. Wimber said, you know, I was in the vineyard for 16 years, so he had a huge impact on me and I read all, I listened and read almost everything he's wrote and said, he said, big decisions need big directions. And he was talking about this specific thing for what you're supposed to do. But I think big prophecies that impacts not just a person or a family or a church or a city, but it, it, when we hit the, the bigger its influence is upon the more people and the more serious its implications the more careful uh, there needs to be in, in trying to discern and to listen and talking. And I, I'm hoping that we'll, there'll be a big learning curve on, on just last um, few years. Um, but I think that's really important. And, and I was thinking about um, one of the things that happened when uh, the vineyard got involved with the um, Kansas city prophets was um it went from Wimber's teaching was, you know, the fivefold ministry existed, equip the church for the work of ministry. And that's your heart in talking about community, yeah. uh, prophetic community within a local church and everybody, Paul, that's, that's the highest gift. And Paul wanted everybody to, to be able to do it. And, and, but there's a difference between that and someone being a prophet who brings nations i'm not who brings words that could be much more serious and impacting the concern i think that john had was and a mistake i think that that unintentionally began to happen was before the introduction of the prophets there was a lot of people just giving these specific prophets for the others and the prophetic community was happening. But then when we inter was inter were introduced to people who was so much seeming like a, a greater anointing in prophecy, not just a prophetic ministry, but prophet, then there was for some, instead of those helping the, the laity become more involved and um, equipping in prophecy, and I'm not saying it's their fault either, but yeah. one of the problems was People begin to say, let's get a word from the prophet rather than let's get a prophetic word from God. And, and so that was in some ways became kind of detrimental. And my, my thing that I've been thinking about, because I'm teaching right now um, about in this course I'm teaching, I'm actually not only giving third wave continuationist theology and, and explaining what that is and how it's different from um, other I'm also actually trying to relate to some of the accusations about uh, NAR, um, the New Apostolic Reformation, and, and picking up here are the major issues, and some of the students will be writing about and addressing the, these issues. But one of the things I'm thinking about, so I, I am saying I've been thinking about this a lot. Good. Uh, Five-fold ministries never to take the place of 
of equipping. All five work together for equipping the church. And one of the greatest, I think, detriments within Christianity was the elevation of the clergy to a point they did the ministry and the laity paid them to do the ministry. And the clergy laity division was very, very harmful uh, to the church. Now, I'm not saying there shouldn't be clergy. I don't mean that. But, but we, we, we need to embrace the aspect of the, 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 the ministry in all of its forms. And if you say four or five <laughs> exists to equip the lay people, the mighty army of God, the lay people just to do the, uh, the things of God. So if the apostolic office or prophetic office, and it's really interesting Calvin even included the evangelist office as uh, wasn't any, there wasn't, it, it didn't continue after the apostolic age, only the, uh, um, the deacons and elders or pastors. That, that was the only two offices left, the teacher, pastor. Those other three evangelists, prophets, and apostles had ended. Just recently, I, I came across this I found where he actually, because I, I, I was looking for it, never could find it. I'd read it somewhere and I couldn't find it. I found it. And it's Calvin himself saying, if a person, if there's a place where there's no church, a country, a, a, an empire or something, there, there's no Christianity there. We could expect, I'm paraphrasing Calvin here. We could expect the restoration of these apostles, prophets, and evangelists to help start the church in that so, it, I mean, this, most people don't know he said this. And, but then he says, but once the church is established, those offices will again end in that area. And you'll only be back to the pastor teacher role. So very even interesting. Calvin, even Calvin believed that there could be the restoration of these offices where the, the church is, you know, not at. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think what you're saying, I just want to clarify for my own self and for anyone who's listening, you know, I don't think that you're saying that an office prophet, because we're talking about prophecy. So an office prophet, or even an apostolic leader who, because many of the apostles that I know yourself included really operated a fairly high level in prophecy, um, that they can't um, stand up and prophesy something that is, um, of a very high level meaning um, something that's going to happen in a nation or something that God is saying about a a people group or a a large ministry, those kinds of things. But, but what I hear you saying is that when, when that becomes their norm and when we begin as a church to elevate them to superstardom, which is sort of what we do a lot, you know, celebrity people and, and then they're, they're no longer about the business of, and I'm, I'm not accusing anybody here. Let me make that really clear because I don't see that happening right now. I mean, I'm not, I'm not putting my finger. I'm just, I'm assessing some of what you were saying in my understanding. Um, but when that begins to happen, then we have, we do have a higher uh, incidence of the problematic and things getting a little bit off track. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I am saying that, 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 that that is a danger you have to watch out for, but, but I, but I'm saying, I believe in the profit office. I believe it's important. I believe that it helps 
others understand better. Like I feel that, you know, one of the most important things I do is in the teaching role of just teaching people about not how to do something. This is one of the things that's misunderstood really bad that we, those of us who have schools of prophecy or schools for healing or schools for whatever it may be, that we actually are teaching. We can teach you how to do this. And if, and, and, and we have to remember sometimes, and I'm guilty of this, that we have learned a language and we just assume others understand. We know we can't do it at all. It is God. And when I pray, nobody gets healed. You saw, you've seen what I can do. If I pray and somebody else gets healed, then you saw what God can do. And so God did it through me, but it was God that did it. It was his power. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think it's important for people to understand that we can't teach people how to heal. It's, it's not a natural ability. Right. What we do and what we mean by our language, which we've got used to speaking, and we know that we're coming from assumption that they understand this, this isn't really us, and we're not really teaching you. Our, our information is not going it doesn't have the ability to turn you from a person who's never seen anybody healed to, to, to someone who sees people get healed or prophecy or prophesy. At, but at the same time, it's, it's this whole thing. But what we are teaching is understanding the ways of God, how God does communicate some of the understanding that that what you thought would have been a normal coincidence really wasn't a coincidence and being able to discern because of the timing of it. You know, what we, what we're doing is trying to help people be able to discern the activity of God in, in their lives for specific things that he wants to do. But still, even with that communication, that only helps them to, to be able, oh, I recognize now, but still God, it's not them. And it's not our, not, it's not something, even, even with impartation, I'm not giving anybody anything. What I am doing is seeing what God's already doing and blessing what he's doing and understanding that what I'm seeing means uh, God's going to do something really powerful in this person's life. Um, so, I think it's important because that's one of the things that is misunderstood. That we're accused that we can just teach people how to do it. And there's a subtleness to this. And even, even my explanation then wasn't clear. The subtleness is the information is about how to hear from God, understand God's activity, and how that creates faith from God because of our knowledge of the ways of God. But it's not a secular or a new age type thing that that's uh, the theology is totally different. It's not channeling, you know, power of the universe. Right. You know, it's very, very different. And and so the, even in the if you go to a new age place and they're, and they're training, it's going to be different, different theology, different. That's independent learning. You learning how to channel energy. We are totally dependent upon a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and only being able to do is Jesus. I, I only do what I see my father do say what my father says. It's in the connection there. That's so important. And that's not really understood by some who look in from the outside and, and bring their understanding of revelation and superimpose it 
on my understanding of revelation. So when I say revelation, there's thing special revelation, biblical scripture. And I'm thinking, no, absolutely not. Specific revelation to build faith for a specific act or deed that's needed in the kingdom. So good, Randy. So good. Thank you for, for all of that and for this discussion. So important in the in this moment in time as we are uh, in the in the throes of COVID and everything else that's going on in our world and um, but always important in the kingdom. So do you have anything, what are you, how are you feeling about the time that we're living through and, and, uh, and, and all the things that are happening right now? What are you sensing that God is saying or doing, if you have any of that? And then would you please pray for my audience um, and, and release to us an impartation, bless what God is doing in all of us? Yeah, I'll do that. And I'll pray for you too. I felt like the Lord said, you, you know, uh, you're a spiritual daughter and I need to pray for you, encourage you and pray for you um, as well as the other people. Um, I am not a prophet and yet I get a lot of prophecy, but most of the prophecies that I get that most impactful has been in relationship of in that moment, hearing it from the Lord about a strong call on somebody's life that and, and what God's going to do with them, whether it was Heidi or Leif Hetland or um, Todd White or Chris Gore, or numbers of numbers of people. I don't usually feel like God has shown me oh, this is what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I just don't hardly ever get anything like that. However, based upon my understanding of the ways of God in history, um, I believe that often revival follows. Uh, national tragedies. They either precede or follow national tragedies. Most of our great revivals, a lot of them, followed uh, um, economic crises or panics um, in our in our history, or they preceded a time when it's going to be a lot of uh, young people die because of the wars that's going to come. Those were usually times of revival. So based upon that. I believe when we've had 400,000 people die, that it's created, it's creating a sense of the, um, the issue of mortality and the issue of mortality begins to cause somebody to begin to think about, is there life after life? Yeah. Is there life after death? Uh, and it causes uh, people to begin to become interested in spiritual things. And based upon stories of friends of mine, like, um, like Pastor Palomazoni is a Baptist pastor of a, in uh, Belo Zonchi in Brazil. Uh, from January to August, they had, uh, I think it's eight or 9,000 new converts in their local church. He said, Ray, we've never seen it like this. The, it's like the, the doors are open in Brazil for a harvest. Uh, Heidi's told me that in, in midst of all the horrible persecutions going on there and the beheading of pastors and the burning down of churches, uh, all that's going on, um, there's also a, an openness to, to the gospel like they've never seen. I believe that, you know, all of, again, the prophetic words that uh, there'd be a billion soul harvest when you could see TV on a watch when there'd be a pill that would bring about an abortion, a morning after pill like, which none of these things had been developed at the time when abortion would be 
legalized. And I, and I think one of them was even that homosexuality would be legalized. These in America, these would be signs that um, we are, we are nearing an outpouring of God's spirit and a huge harvest of souls. So I think as we've seen that those things have come to pass, that those are the types of prophetic words that he wants the church to be praying. And he wants the church to remember its role as the church, that the covenant is with the church. It's not with a nation. It's with the church. And Jesus is still ruling and reigning. And he's, he's not a libertarian. He's not a Republican. He's not a Democrat. He's King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And his kingdom has been growing from that wonderful thing that Paul talks about, this, this victorious view that he has of what's going to happen when at the time the church is just a hand, handfuls of people around the Mediterranean. And, and he talks about this, this like looking back at it from now, a billion people identify with Jesus and the church and all over the world. But that's not where it was when he said those things. And so there's these prophetic words and insight that, that, that even what Jesus said, we're going to leaven the whole lump. Uh, I, I know that there's going to be a great revival. And I, I don't believe that. Uh, and I also, I believe that um, even when Jesus comes back, there's going to be evil here to be resisted. So it's not been a complete sense to where that the, the church has now become everything. Um, I, I remember reading from G.B. Care, the English scholar who wrote on a book commentary on Revelation. He said it'd be the best times and the worst of times. There's going to be an opposition. There's going to be darkness and light, but the church will have it's grown and grown and grown. And I, I, I have a victorious view of the end time, but I, I, I do not expect that Jesus can't come back until everything has been brought under his rule because that assumes that there'd be no one to have a battle with when he comes. And I do think that there will be some tough times as well. So I think that let's keep our heart on the Lord and, and, and our concern uh, upon the church. And I would just speak a word um, when I study the book of revelation. And again, it's all about worship yes. and, in the book of Revelation, the big challenge at the time, both there's a historic, sometimes you look at the future and you look at a, like foothills and then there's the mountains and they look the same and you don't realize it. Well, this is part of it. And this, there's a bigger fulfillment. And I think that's true in, in, in Revelation. A lot of people, since there's truth there, that when the emperor was saying, all of your allegiance has got to be to me. He's put himself in a place of like a, a type of the Antichrist, an end time Antichrist. And I really, uh, you know, sense that the danger we have to look at, even before the final Antichrist shows himself, we have to be careful of uh, idolatry. <laughs> we have to be careful of making anything that, uh, anything that we make more important than our relationship with God and any institution that we put more uh, important in the plan of God than his church, 
we're stepping into idolatry and we're doing exactly the thing that the emperor was saying in, in the, that yeah. uh, Roman and that end of the first and in the, in the second century as well. All your allegiance got to come to me. Right. That's and so right. we, we got to keep Jesus first yeah. and realize that his church is bigger than our country or any country or any pop, any party or any ism. Yes. The church is greater than communism, Nazism, fascism. It's greater than any of those isms. So we put the church and its Lord and we bow down to them and we pray for those in authority over us, whether they are a Republican or a Democrat. That's right. We pray for wisdom. And we pray for righteousness and justice because when a nation loses its righteousness and justice, when a nation, when we see it all the world, you and I have been in many, many countries. I've been in 54 countries, by the way, by now. <laughs> more, more than me. I think I counted 28. <laughs> yeah. When we, when we see corruption, high corruption in a government, that corruption in the government brings that nation into poverty. And from a first world or second world, can, they can drop down into a third world or a greater majority world, or it's called now. Mm -hmm. So that's why, regardless of whether we're under socialism or somebody else is under socialism, you know, whether you're, you're part of the church in Scandinavia with a lot of socialism, or you're part of the church in England, or you're part of the church in Russia under communism, or China under communism, doing really well. By the way, the church is doing really well in, in China, or here in the United States with, with our democracy, that we pray for peace. We pray that our people would have, leaders would have wisdom, and we pray for greater unity, greater humility, and greater civility to be seen in, in leaders in high places, in politics, in the church, in civil governments, all over, in the courts. That, uh, because I think it, it's in that place of greater unity and the wisdom of God. We pray, God, our politicians needs the wisdom of God. And, and I actually do think that all over the world, it's not known, but Tim, Kim, I know that there are prophets that have heard it correct to bring the wisdom of God and apostolic leaders in certain regions and cities that they have heard from God, what they need to do to be able to bring wisdom to those that's in politics, regardless of party, Yes. And, and strategies to help deal with some of the biggest problems they're, they're facing. And some of these leaders, without it even being known, are, take, are with the blessing of the leaders of their church, are taking substantial amounts of money and giving it and laying it at the feet of the people of the city government. And when they say, well, what do you want us, how do you want us to use this? They basically say, we're not telling you how to use it. We're laying it at your feet. That's, that is the way that we move to influence, not by kind of a dominion theology that we're going to take over, but we're going we're to influence. 
and we're going to serve. And you and I have friends that are doing that very well. We do. Uh, so that's, that's, that's the bright spot to me. Well, thank you. You, you confirmed two of the messages I just finished writing <laughs> for, this, oh. for this coming season about that um, in the church. I felt like that the Lord really, really wants to deal with idolatry and, um, and, and returning, bringing us back really to the heart of worship and dealing with anything that has come between us and our worship of the Lord. And it's not, it's not for condemnation. It really is for uh, preparation to receive the harvest that is coming. Because if we, if we maintain any form of idolatry or, um, or toleration of Jezebel or a religious spirit, any of these kinds of things, um, then, then the babies that are about to come in, in droves, in, in, you know, millions, billions, the billions will harvest, um, then how will they be discipled and how will they learn the doctrines and the theology of the church in a correct way? It's just a preparation. It's, it's not because he is uh, judging us and calling us bad and throwing away the church. He loves the church. It's because he always wants to bring redemption. Always correction is for our better to make us uh, able to have a greater capacity for what is coming. And so um, thank you for saying that. And I, such wisdom, Randy, thank you. Would you pray for us, please? I'll pray for you and then the audience. All right. Uh, first, I want to just say I am proud of you as a spiritual father. I am proud of you of uh, your life. I know a lot about you as we've talked a lot. I've uh, had you in the, in the class with us and I know that you are a, a, a student and you study hard and I've seen the Holy Spirit just touch you. I've seen you be broken before God and weeping before God. And, and uh, I don't expect you to be perfect or never make a mistake. And I am certain that if there are times that you have, you will, you'll respond in a good and mature way that will even gain a greater uh, authority and, and walk in that place of humility. But I, I actually believe that God is, going, is raising you up to be one of the uh, voices in the prophetic community, one of the pro prophetesses, one of the prophets, prophetesses. Um, and that, it's not only understanding how to hear the voice of God that's so important that you have, but it's also an ability because you, you have done your work, your homework, your study, to actually know when something begins to be inconsistent with the covenant of God, inconsistent with the canon, inconsistent with the belief of the church, and be able to see it and call people back away from that. So that's why one of the reasons why we need prophets like you and people, others in the church. So Father, I bless Kim in Jesus' name, and I pray that you would just increase the anointing on her. I pray for her uh, uh, and, and Mike. I bless them in their new place. I bless them in that place of peace and that the uh, that that place of of escape to just be with you and, and that place to come away to, their, their, to hopefully uh, a mountaintop experiences in the, the, the place with, um, in, 
in Idaho there. And I pray that just increase, increase, increase in revelation, uh, specific revelation, and uh, increase in uh, the teaching gift. Uh, uh, God, we just bless her. And we bless those that's, uh, that she's having an influence on. And we pray, God, that through the wisdom uh, and the anointing and the teaching gift, not just the prophetic gift, but the teaching gift that's on Kim, that others would be blessed and they will grow. And there will be a growing community of people who believe in prophecy and can prophesy as a part of the church. And we work toward the fulfillment of what Paul said, to desire the spiritual gifts and desire, especially the greater gifts. And uh, he said prophecy was the greatest of all. And so, Father, because it had the ability to build up the church. And so we bless her. We bless her. And we pray that you would work with her, Father, and open doors to her. We thank you for the great door you've opened in Brazil to her. That's been really fun to watch, God. And so we bless her and we bless her spiritual sons and daughters in Jesus' name and the community of other key leaders that you put around her of, of just good friends with whom they can minister together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Randy, and God bless you. If you are new, if you're listening to this, watching this, and you are new to Dr. Randy Clark, uh, this is the place to begin with his book, There Is More. I've read most of his books. I have several of them sitting here with me, there, but there are many more than this. Um, but this is the place to begin so that you can understand how important the anointing is, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, receiving the Holy Spirit, moving in, in the power gifts and um, and allowing the Holy Spirit to really shape and, uh, and bring an impartation in your life. Thank you for joining us for the Move Forward podcast. We would love for you to rate this podcast and share it with a friend. You can connect with Dr. Kim on social media. For those links and more, visit her website, kimmoss.com. Host Dr. Kim Moss leads Kim Moss Ministries and Women of Our Time. She is the author of Prophetic Community, The Way of the Kingdom, Facing Ziklag, and The Four Questions. You can find those books on Amazon. Remember, never throw away your confidence. It is time to move forward. Thank you.